Is it going? Yes. Welcome to week one of a teaching on Ruth, which I will put forward here too. If you're listening online, I do have some notes that you can download and follow. And for those who are here, you can look at the notes as well. Let me begin with, uh, with prayer. Father God, we just thank you for this opportunity to gather and early on a sunny morning and study your word together, look into the wonders of it, story of from three millennia ago about two destitute widows who you rescued, and it's painted here beautifully for us in scripture, and we want to take a look at that and benefit from that and listen to what you have to say to us through this story. We just ask you to open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Ruth. Uh, so a little history on Ruth and myself. Um, Ruth is my favorite book in the Bible. You say, wait a moment, I thought it was something else. Well, that's because I'm studying it right now. <laughs> Whatever book I'm studying is my favorite book in the Bible. So Ruth is my favorite book in the Bible today. today. <laughs> but I first got interested in Ruth about 15 years ago when I heard a teaching series by John Piper on it. And he really opened my eyes to, wow, this is quite a story. This is quite a book, and there's a lot in it. It's a lot more than you may think on an initial read. There's a whole lot we can glean from it, and glean's a good word because it's a book of gleaning. That's exactly that's what Ruth does. She gleans, and we hope, hopefully, we can glean as well. Just a quick introduction to it on the first page of the handout. It's a short story in four movements or four chapters. It's only 85 verses long. And yet, it's extraordinarily well-written, very poetic. Um, I've got a quote there from a man named Rudolf Alexander Schroeder, who was a poet 100 years ago in Germany, a, a Christian poet at that, one who actually, one of the few who actually stood up to Hitler and survived. And he loved to, he would, he would generate his own poems, but his take on Ruth, translated into English, because he, he was speaking German, of course. No poet in the world has written a more beautiful short story. It's got just about everything in it. There's suspense. There's, I don't know if there's action, if gleaning is action. There's, there's some scandalous stuff going on. There's sexual overtones in it. There's uh, male-female relationships. There's God working behind the scenes in amazing ways. It's a book that actually starts out presenting God as if he's the antagonist. Every story has a protagonist and an antagonist. God is actually presented as the antagonist early on, and then he actually becomes the hero. Um, it's, it's interesting to see that evolution. Today in chapter 1, God's going to appear to be, at least to the main character in the story, the bad guy. But he's not. He's definitely not. And that's what Ruth is showing. It's showing that God, even when God appears to be the bad guy, is actually the good guy. 
working behind the scenes. That's kind of like a theme for this this book that's going to come through. It's going to be clear, and the, the author is going to masterfully take us on the ups and downs, and, and we'll see that. We'll see that. Just a quick summary of the plot I wrote down there. It's uh, a pair of destitute widows are providentially rescued. I chose the word providential, and I'll explain that shortly. Providentially rescued from emptiness, which is Naomi's term for it, and subsequently elevated to a place of fullness among the people of God. They go from total destitution to being elevated and revered, not because of anything they particularly did, but because of the God who was working behind the scenes providentially to make it happen. Some of the unusual things about the book, it's got ordinary characters, people we can relate to. There's no prophets, priests, or kings, no superheroes, no Marvel Cinematic Universe type folks. There's no spectacular signs. There's no miracles. It's very ordinary. This is something that could happen today in the here and now, with the exception of the cultural traditions that are a little strange. It's people we can relate to. And, as I said already, it deals in God's hidden providence. God is in the background. Not only are there no miraculous signs in the book, there's not God parting the Red Sea or turning water into wine or raising somebody from the dead. There's none of that, but He's there. It's very clear he's there. We'll see that as we go through it. He's actually calling the shots kind of in the background. He's like the director of a movie, kind of just directing everybody around. And everybody's just it's like an act, and people are playing it out, playing the roles, and God's accomplishing his purposes through these people primarily. That's, that's really one of the big things I'm encouraged by Ruth for is God isn't directly working on people's lives. He's actually working on people's lives through other people who he has put in their lives to bless them. That's who Ruth is. Ruth actually is a gift from God to bless Naomi, her mother-in-law. And Boaz is a gift from God to bless both Ruth and Naomi. But they're just ordinary people. And God's providence is working through these people. So I was encouraged when I was studying this that God actually works through us. He can work through his people to accomplish his purposes. It's like he uses us for his purposes. And it's really amazing to see. You can see it in Ruth and you'd be encouraged by it. Now, my definition, I'm going to define this word providence because I've used it a couple times. Providence, um, like the word trinity from last month, last four weeks, is not in the Bible. You don't, most translations of the Bible don't use this word. So it's another one of those words that's not in the Bible, but it's very, very handy because it, it's a good way to describe what's going on. Now, fortunately, providence is, is a whole lot easier to understand than the Trinity. <laughs> in fact, one little definition here I gathered from David Atkinson, one of my sources, pretty much sums it up, or at least the way I'm thinking about it. Providence is the activity of God as he guides and governs his created order. It's God's Sovereign activity, God's sovereign work 
as he guides and governs his created order. He just causes everything to happen. He guides it hiddenly, like a hidden behind-the-scenes director. And some of the things I like about the word providence, the word already assumes God. Providence doesn't really make any sense unless you're talking about the capital of Rhode Island. It doesn't make any sense without God. The two go together. Nobody else has any providence except for God. God's Only God can have providence. Only God has got the power to be providential. So when you say the word providence, it's almost like another name for God. At least that's the way it was used by actually our founding fathers when they would write if you ever read some of George Washington's correspondence, he uses the word providence a lot. When he means providence, he means God. He says providence is this and providence is that. He met us on the battlefield. This providence did this for us. Providence provided this for us. He says providence all the time. And a lot of a lot of the founding fathers, the early literature of this country, they substitute providence for God in their the way they talk. So it's I like the word because when you say providence. It's like another name for God. But it assumes some neat things about God. It assumes he's sovereign and all-powerful. So it's got his character in there, his all-powerful, omnipotent power. But it assumes more than that. It says more than that. So, as I said in point 6C there, providence goes beyond who God is, his sovereign character, and it speaks to what he does. What does he do with this sovereign character? He guides. He governs. And as I said there, God wisely guides his created order for good purpose to his glory. And nothing can thwart him. Nothing can thwart this providence. It's his sovereign plan in action. And it's a, it's a word that I'll be using in this study. And it's also a word, uh, the other, one of the other sources that I rely on heavily, as I've already said, is John Piper. And he actually wrote a book. His commentary on Ruth is called A Sweet and Bitter Providence. That's the name of his commentary on Ruth, A Sweet and Bitter Providence. And he's also, if you know, if you're familiar with Piper, he's put out a humongous book called Providence about this thick in the last couple of years. And it's probably the biggest book he's ever put out. So he, he's, as much as he's into the word sovereignty, he's more into the word providence because it, it encompasses his sovereignty plus the activity that that sovereignty causes. It's, it's a combination of both. It's everything about it. It's very an all-encompassing, beautiful word. So just, uh, just as an introduction. And I'll say other things about Ruth as we go forward. But I want to get into Ruth 1 at this point, and let me actually read, let's read this, I'll read it out loud here, okay, Ruth 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem 
in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. And these two, these took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years and both Malon and Chilion died so that the women, the woman, the woman, interesting that the word isn't there, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Actually, there were three women left without their husbands, but the focus is on the woman. Naomi is the main character of the story. This book begins with Naomi. It ends with Naomi, more or less, in chapter 4. Despite the name Ruth, you could have called this book the book of Naomi, and it would not have been wrong. She is actually the main character. She's the character arc of this story. And as you can see, at this point, Ruth is mentioned. She's the last one mentioned of all these names. She's like in the background. She's like Ruth, whatever. And she'll end up becoming huge. But right now she's like just a bit player in the corner that's barely mentioned. It's about Naomi who is put in a series of very bitter circumstances. Because if you stop and think about this, just in these five verses, there are six devastating things that have happened to this woman. And when we read Ruth, we tend to go, oh, that's the nice, bad first five verses. Get on to the good stuff, and we move on. And we just say, eh, I don't want to read about that stuff. That's bad. But you got to stop and go over this. Because Ruth is, uh, not Ruth, Naomi's going to respond. She's going to call herself bitter later in this chapter. And, and you gotta, you got to look at these five verses and dig in to see why, why would she call herself bitter. And, and just think about it. There are, I've listed six things. There's six things in these verses that are devastating. Any one of these six things would devastate any of us if they happened to us. She has six of them piled up on top of one another. And the first is famine. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A famine in the land of Bethlehem. Bethlehem's in Judah. And Bethlehem, by the way, in Hebrew... Beth means house. Lehem means bread. So Bethlehem is the house of bread, which just connotes food, right? Lots of food. There's, if you want food, you go to Bethlehem. There's lots of bread there, lots of food. So Bethlehem, by its very name, is the house where there's lots of bread. She's from there, but there's a famine there. All of a sudden, there's no bread in the house of bread. The house of bread has shuttered its doors because there's nothing growing. It's a famine. People were starving. And when famine happens, oftentimes people have to leave their home and go somewhere else. Now, remember, she's married to a man named Elimelech. So Elimelech's the one who's probably making the shot, calling the shots here. Elimelech decides, well, I've heard there's, it doesn't say this in the text, I'm reading this in. He went to Moab, so I'm assuming he heard there was some food in Moab. So he takes his family, he's got two little boys and his wife at this time. They go to Moab. Now, Moab, 
is a foreign country to them. This is not home. Moab is actually unfriendly territory in Scripture. There's, I've listed a couple incidents just briefly. I won't cover them in any detail. Just to give you a flavor for Moab being bad, not a good place for an Israelite to dwell. And while uh, a couple hundred years before this, when Israel was still wandering in the wilderness, the king of Moab, Balak, he's the one that hired Balaam, the famous prophet who came, and he gave him a lot of money to curse, basically curse Israel. And, of course, God didn't let Balaam curse. He had his donkey incident. You probably remember all those stories. Balaam can't curse because God won't let him. So Balak, Balak is already like set against these folks, and he actually does some other not-so-good stuff after that. But there's a whole Numbers chapter 22, 23, 24, and even 25 explain that incident. And Moab is not a good place. They don't like Israelites. And then more recently in the book of Judges, which is probably maybe 100 years prior to this, this particular, another king of Moab actually comes out and conquers Israel or oppresses them. And God has to raise up a judge named Ehud to deliver them from Moab. And that story you can read about in Judges 3. And remember, this book is written in the days when the judges ruled. So Ruth is happening during this period when the, the judges are ruling. And, it's, and Moab has been one of the oppressive countries during this period, and Elimelech has decided we're going to go there. Apparently there's food there. So he goes there. It's unfriendly. So he's living in a foreign land, living there, and he lives there a while. But after getting there, Elimelech dies. Verse 3, the husband dies. Naomi's a widow pretty quickly. Stuck in a foreign land, her husband led her here, and he dies. And then the irony of it is Elimelech in Hebrew actually means my God is king. My God is king. Eli is my God. Malek is king. My God is king. So the man whose God is king just died. What does that tell you about his God, huh? Where's his God at? Why is he dead? Why is the guy who's... All right, so you got... That's, that's bad. The leader of the home is now dead, and you got the two young lads growing up. So the next thing in verse 4 is the two young lads, rather than um, go home and marry one of the Israelite girls, they pick up some locals, and they marry two Moabite women. Now, you think, well, what's wrong with Moabite women? Well, Moabite women actually have a pretty bad reputation due to some of the stuff that's going on. Actually, in Numbers 25, which is that final chapter about the Balaam, Balak story, if I'll just read the first verse of that. You'll get an idea of what the Moabite women do. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people of Israel began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Oh, the, do- the women of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, the bad god Baal, who's always a, a bad thing. This is where Baal first shows up in the Bible, by the way. Moab introduces them, the Moabite women. So 
Moabite women, they're like women of the night, according to Numbers 25. Not good. And then it goes on to say that God actually brought a plague. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people, hang them in the sun before the Lord. The fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moaz said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor through these women. So that's, there's, there's your history. Moabite women are not thought of as, um, they're not the, the women you would like your boys to marry, basically. And these two boys have decided to marry the Moabite women and stick around. So there's another not, not the best thing going on for Naomi. And there's also another verse in Deuteronomy 23 that because of what the Moabites did, it actually says in Deuteronomy 23, an interesting prohibition. It didn't say you can't marry them, but it does say this about them. This is important, I think. Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 4. No, this is a, a law. From Moses, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way. And when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. So there's actually a prohibition. Not to, you doesn't say you can't marry them, but if you do, they're excluded. For ten generations. Interesting. So you're marrying a Moabite woman, and if you ever do decide to go back to Bethlehem, you're kind of going to be an outsider. They'll be outsiders. They're not going to be allowed in the assembly, according to Deuteronomy. Not the wisest move. But the two boys have married these women. And then in verse 5, those two boys die after 10 years. Now, that's bad too because now not only are Naomi's sons dead, but they had no children in 10 years. And the 10 years implies something else. It implies that the two daughters-in-law are barren. Because if you've been married for 10 years and you haven't had a child back then, because nobody was trying to hold off Back then, it's like, you want children as quickly as possible, and you can't have them. Both these women appear to be barren. So Naomi is left without a husband, without any children, without any heirs, no grandchildren, in a foreign country, looking for food, starving, stuck with two Moabite daughters-in-law. That's, that's a series of bad circumstances. And if you just... I haven't experienced any one of those. She experienced all six. That's where she's at. That's, that's where she sits. But then, God shows up. Verse 6 and 7. God changes everything with a very, 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 very hidden, almost imperceptible move, but it's Clearly God, the scripture says so. It says 
Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. She just heard a report. God has returned and he's given them food. And the, the Hebrew word for food there is bread. Lahem. He's given them bread. So there's now bread back in the house of bread. She's heard it. And notice it says God did it. This is God's providential act. And curiously, it's one of only two times in this story that God actually does something directly. That's a teaser. I'll let you know what the other one is later. It's part of the suspense of the story. But God has visited his people, which the word visit, as I've said there, implies looks over with grace, with intent to bless. Seen their plight, and he's given them bread. But he's done it back in Israel, not in Moab. And this moves Naomi to return from the fields of Moab and head back home, get back where she belongs. Now that word return is going to be used about seven or eight times in the next paragraph. And it's significant. It's a significant thought here. What's going on with Naomi and her daughters-in-law the idea of returning from Moab to Bethlehem, turning on what, leaving behind, stretching forward to where she's supposed to go. There's there's an idea of repentance going on here that we could relate to. It's it's a turn. Oh, there's food over there. I'm going to go back. God's leading her back home. God initiated that. Just by providing food at home, and she she turns and starts to return, starts to go back. And and interestingly, both the daughters-in-law go with her, which actually is interesting because they're not obligated to stay with her at this point. Their husbands are dead, but that tells you there must be something attractive about Naomi. That these two destitute daughters-in-law would actually choose initially to go with her, they, they, there's something about Naomi and her destitution that draws them to her, and they're going with her. So they set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. They went on the way to return to the land of Judah, verse 7. Then verse 8, as they're going, all three are going, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. Turn around and go the other way that return word again. And then she actually, what she says here, if you read it, it's actually a prayer. It's, it's, she's telling them what to do, but she's telling them why, and she's actually praying something over them. So that's what I've termed verses 8 and 9 is Naomi's prayer for her daughters-in-law. And there's two requests that she makes. First in verse 8, may the Lord deal kindly with you. And the second in verse 9, may the Lord grant you rest. So she's actually praying for her two daughters-in-law. May God have deal kindly with you, and may he give you rest. Now the word kindly is the 
famous Hebrew word chesed, which may not mean anything to most of you, but that is the word that is translated throughout the Psalms as the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That that chesed is the steadfast love. I think the New American Standard calls it loving kindness. It's that idea of God's covenantal, never-ending love and faithfulness to his people. She actually is saying there, may the Lord grant you chesed back in Moab. Stay in Moab. I'm, I'm praying, I'm literally praying that this chesed that you've, apparently, they've experienced, they've tasted it living with Naomi and this family in Moab. And they like enough of it that they're going with it. But she's saying, may the Lord give you that chesed over there. Go back. You don't belong where I'm going. Stay there. Stay stay in the fields of Moab. And may the Lord give you this loving kindness there. That's the first prayer. And the second one is, may give you rest. And rest, the idea of rest, what she, what she says in the text, what she's really saying is, and, and she'll describe it a little later, go find yourself some other husbands. But she uses the word rest because it's not just talking about getting remarried because the word rest implies and is used elsewhere in the Old Testament as, as almost like a description of the promised land, of the inheritance, of the future secure place to live in fact, I've got a reference there that we can look at in Deuteronomy 12, 9 through 10, which kind of describes what the word rest is all about. Moses speaking, I'll read this. For you have not, for you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you will live in safety, and then it goes on, the Lord will choose a place to dwell. But the idea is this place I'm taking you to, the Lord's taking you to, is a place of rest and safety and inheritance. So that's the idea of rest here. Naomi's praying that the girls would get rest from the Lord as well. But she's telling them, get the rest over here in Moab. Don't go with me. Stay here. God is able to bless you with loving kindness, grace and kindness here. He's also able to give you rest here. But she's kind of... What she's, she's betraying something here. She thinks, don't go with me because he's not, he hasn't given me any of that. I don't have any of this. And you know, I'm like, I'm like the bad luck charm here. I, I don't have any security. I've got no future. I've got no kids. I've got no, nothing. I got nothing. Don't go with me. God, God is good. He'll take care of you, but not with me. Go home. I'm going on. I'm a destitute woman. Stay clear of me. I am. I, I have no hope. Why are you sticking with me? God is a good God. He'll meet you somewhere else. He's clearly staying away from me. I'm the. I'm the black cloud that God stays away from. So 
that's that's kind of what she's communicating. And, and there's this big, interesting back and forth now that she's prayed this. And I'll read them in verses 10 through 12. That kind of reveals Naomi has a mix of faith, and yet she's hopeless at the same time, which is an interesting place to be. But you can understand it, can't you? Considering where she's been, where she is, hungry, childless, no future. So here's these verses kind of reveal where she's at. 10 through 13. And they said to her, this is the girls, after she prays for them, no, we won't return with you to your people. They want to be with her. And Naomi gives her reasons now. Okay, think about this. Turn back. That's a return word again. Return, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back. There it is again, another return. Return, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, there's a, there's a word there. If I should say I have hope, that betrays the fact that she has none. She has no hope. If I should say that I have hope, because I really don't, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are, were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. There's Naomi's heart. And you hear it and you go, oh. But you can, you can understand it from verses 1 through 5. Okay. No hope. She's bitter. The hand, she actually, that's where she calls God the antagonist. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. He's the enemy. He's my enemy anyway. But interestingly, he's not your enemy. I have faith that he'll bless you somewhere else, but he's against me. Just stay away from me. The hand of the Lord, for whatever reason, has gone out against me. That's where she's at. That's what she believes. And it's amazing that she still has a faith in God. She hasn't abandoned her faith in God through all this. She believes he's there, but she doesn't believe that he is doing anything good for her. He's doing good for everybody else, or he will do good for these other girls if they leave her alone, but he's not doing anything good for me. It's very bitter to me. I'm embittered by the fact that this sovereign God, this providential God, has put me in this bad place. She doesn't actually come out and say it, but she's kind of implying this is God's fault. And it's a place, if you're honest, we may have all been in our walks. I'll get. I'll return to that in a little bit because she's. This isn't the first time she says she's bitter. So what what happens when she makes this response? Verse fourteen through eighteen. How do the girls respond? Then they, the girls, lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And that's the last you hear of Orpah. She's out of the story. Exit stage left. Actually, Orpah does the sensible thing. <laughs> Makes sense. You're right. 
why am I tracking with a woman who has no future to a foreign land where they don't like me anyway because I'm Moabite? Yeah, I got. I can see the path over here. It looks better. It looks, it's it's easier anyway. It's clear. It's clear. It's like yeah, that's got to be where I go. So, thanks from mother-in-law for the prayer. Kisses her. See ya. So it's as if Orpah was hearing. Orpah heard the bitter cry of Naomi, and it kind of like scared her. Like oh, yeah. See ya. But Ruth, Ruth does the unexpected thing. She clings, she clings to Naomi. After all this, she clings to Naomi and is like, what are you doing? Why would you cling to this destitute, bitter, bitter woman? And the way I, I've kind of contrasted the two girls, Orpah heard Naomi's bitter take on God and left. But Ruth heard Naomi's promises, her prayers of the presence of God and the blessing of God and the rest of God, the promised rest, and she she clings to that instead. Orpah goes, oh yeah, bad, the bad stuff. But Ruth is attracted to that prayer, that prayer of, if I go with Naomi, there'll be chesed and there'll be rest and security. She clings to that. And I put a little note there. The word cling is the same word that's translated cleave in Genesis 2.24. A man shall leave his mother and father and cleave. So there's it's an interesting... She's really, really tightly knit right now to, to Naomi. And then, and then she makes this... Remarkable, remarkable confession that you've all heard in verses 15, 16, and 17. Actually, in 15, Naomi's making one more plea for her to go back, return. Her fourth plea. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return, go with her. But Ruth says this instead. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you to go that way. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God my God. And she goes beyond that too. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. And that that comes out of, like, nowhere. Where did that come from? Ruth has suddenly declared what she's really clinging to isn't Naomi, It's the God of Naomi, the God in this woman. Ruth sees that as what she really wants. I mean, listen to those words. Your people shall be my people. Those people happen to be the people of God. I want to be with God's people. I don't want to be with the Moabites anymore. Your God will be my God. And then 
even this is where this is where it goes even beyond that. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Even after you die, I want to keep following this God. You could be long gone, and I'm not. I'm not leaving him. I'm sticking. So this is where it's. She's not just clinging to Naomi. She's clinging to the God of Naomi. Like I'm going to follow your God, even after you die. And um, it's interesting. Uh, you've probably heard these verses quoted in marriage vows, which is beautiful. And everyone goes, "Oh, that's so beautiful." But remember, this the situation here. This is a in a marriage vow. You're, it's like you're vowing to each other. This is not a vow to another person. This is actually about a God, the God of that other person, because marriage is not meant to survive the death of one of the partners, right? When one dies, you're free to marry someone else. And that's perfectly fine if the Lord has takes, takes your spouse early and you have years to go to marry someone else. This is more than that. This is like, even after you die, I'm going to be knit to you. This is beyond a marriage vow. This is a vow between her and the God of Naomi. Stunning. Unexpected. And she goes with Naomi. And Naomi just gets really quiet. Says, okay. Naomi's thinking of Ruth as, oh boy, you're going to be a burden to me. But I can't, you've made up your mind. If you stop and think, Ruth, Ruth, Orpah did the sensible thing. Ruth is doing the what in the world thing. What are you doing? She's, and I'm going to, as I stated here in my point five, and I'm going to repeat statements like this throughout the study, Ruth takes a risk that Orpah won't. She's risking something. She's taking a risk. I'm going to bet my life on Naomi's God. And I'm going to do something that everybody's going to look at and go, what are you doing? And as the story progresses, you're going to see that she gets rewarded for that risk. Not evident in today's chapter, though. She's taking a risk. And, and the book of Ruth is about a lot of risk-taking. You'll see that every week. There's a big risk that goes on, every, taken every week, that doesn't make sense. It's like, this is what you should be doing. But there's something about and Ruth is demonstrating a faith in God that is motivating her to take these unusual risks, putting her money where her faith is and going to a strange place. Finally, verse 19 through 22, the two women get to the house of bread to get back. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, the house of bread. And when they came to the house of bread, it's interesting how they say it twice. And you can read it, the house of bread. That's literally what it, how it translates Bethlehem. They came to the house of bread. And when they came to the house of bread, just to let you know, they were back at the house of bread. They're here, they're here. The whole town was stirred because of them. And that word stirred is 
a positive stirring like, oh, long time no see. It's not, it's not like, stay away. It's, it's a positive welcome. And that's, that's what we would do too if we saw a familiar face from 10, more than 10 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, returned. The first response is, wow, you're back. Tell us what's going on. The whole town was stirred because of them. And the women, the women of the town, and that's interesting because the women of the town, when they say, is this Naomi? It's not, it's not, is this Naomi? Look at you. What happened to you? Boy, the years have been rough on you. No, it's, is this Naomi? Yay, she's back. It's, it's an exciting, it's, it's, they're, they're happy to see her. Is this Naomi? And the townspeople and the women are going to show up again and later as well and make another joyous announcement later on. Part of the poetry and the beauty of this, this thing, this whole story, the symmetry of it. Chapters 1 and 4 are very, very similar if you compare the two. And those women show up and they're like making a happy announcement at the end. Is this Naomi? And then we get to listen to Naomi go off. Just flat out go off. She was bitter the first time. You thought she was bitter the first time. These verses are hard. This woman is... She's obviously walked a long way through the desert with an obstinate daughter-in-law and they're not talking. And she finally gets to a place where she can just vent. Oh, you want to call me Naomi? You know what Naomi means? It means pleasant. Naomi means pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Call me Mara. That's what Mara means. Call me bitter. Change my name. I'm not, I'm not pleasant. I'm bitter. And I'm letting you know it. I am absolutely bitter. I'm beside myself. And she calls out God for four things He's done. He's dealt bitterly with her. He's brought her back empty. He's testified against her. And he's brought calamity upon her. No, don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. I'm bitter. And thankfully, the townspeople just... Nice to see you, Naomi. Welcome back. There's no response. There's nobody saying, don't do that! You're like, okay, we, we get it. We get it. One interesting thing to note, she uses, instead of calling God by his given name, Yahweh, which she did before when she talked to the girls, the Lord, whenever you see in the Old Testament the word Lord in all caps, which it shows up, like back in verse 6, the Lord, L-O-R-D, visited his people. And then when she prays, she says, may the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital in verse 8, deal kindly, give chesed. And then verse 9, may the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital, grant you to have rest, find rest. She's not calling him the Lord in this diatribe. She's calling him the Almighty, which is not a personal name. That's a description of God's power and sovereignty. 
But she's abandoned the term Lord. She's not calling Him a personal name. She's saying, the Almighty has done this. The Almighty has done this. The Almighty has done this. And it's as if the author is trying to let us know she really thinks her personal relationship with God has been severed. She believes He's the Sovereign One, the Almighty, but He's no longer the Lord of me anyway. He's dealt bitterly with me. That's where she's at. Yet, I believe He's there. I believe He's Almighty, but He's not my Lord. He's abandoned me. And the people just welcome her. I put a reference there. I think it kind of reminds me of the prodigal son returning in that story, Luke 15. You know, the prodigal son's coming back. Oh, I'm a terrible boy. Leave me alone. And the father's like, oh, shut up. I'm gonna... I love you anyway. That's kind of what the town's, how they're receiving her right now. Kind of like the, the returning prodigal. She's come back. She's bitter. And then it says, there's no mention of, of Ruth in this paragraph other than the two of them came. Verse 22 sums it up. So Naomi returned with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, highlighting the Moabite, meaning she really doesn't belong here. She's spawned. But it says something very, very, very weird and unusual about Ruth the Moabite. And if you're reading the ESV in verse 22 and you think about it, you should see this is, this is weird. Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. It says, Ruth returned too. Naomi has returned. She used to live here. Ruth has never lived here. Why is the author saying she returned? Did he get his words wrong? There's Hebrew scholars that try to say that. Oh yeah, he's probably he didn't mean to say that. But that's what it says. She returned from the fields of Moab, actually. And they came to the house of bread at the beginning of barley harvest. So the question is, how has Ruth returned when she's never been here before? I've got two questions there at the end to ponder. The second one is, is Naomi really empty? She said she's empty. And yet the author says they're in Bethlehem, the house of bread at the beginning of barley harvest. Sounds like God's about to provide their food problem. That's about to be solved. She's got food. She's not empty there. And uh, she's also got Ruth. She doesn't see Ruth as anything but a burden, but Ruth is actually God's gift to her. <clears throat> but Naomi doesn't see it yet. She'll see it in the next chapter, but not yet. She's not really empty. As you read this, she's accusing God of being the antagonist, but he's not. He's the one that put the bread in the house of bread. He's the one that changed Ruth's heart to want to abandon the fields of Moab for the fields of Bethlehem and go with her. He's given her Ruth and he's given her bread, a barley harvest. 
the sovereign one is putting Naomi right where he wants her. And she doesn't get it yet. And how, how in the world can Ruth be returning? Returning? I believe it's not a mistake. I believe it's an implication that Ruth, she's now a child of God. She's been, she's become a new creation through somewhere in the story which prompted that amazing confession, your God will be my God. She's no longer really a Moabite at heart. She's abandoned the Moabite religion. She's abandoned the Moabite culture. And she's embracing a new culture she's never experienced before. She's a new creation. She's been saved, to use a New Testament term. The old has passed away, the new has come. So in that sense, she's returning to her home, the home that God's, if you read New Testament theology in Ephesians, before the foundation of the world, he had everyone who was his in mind, and everyone who was his went astray, and everyone who was his were drawn back and returned to him. So I believe in that sense, Ruth... She's been in the mind of God from before the time she was created. She's been living in sin in Moab up until now. She's seen God and the glory of God. She's repented. She's returned. She's a new creation. She's returning to where she belongs, where God intended her to be all along. That's how she's returning. <clears throat> everyone who comes to Christ, who comes to God, they return. God already had a place for them made. He already had it in their mind, His mind. And they're just returning to their home that God had prepared for them before the foundation of time. That's how Ruth can be said to be returning with Naomi. They're both home now. And we're at the end of my time, I think. Um, there's a lot you can gain. You can be encouraged by this. Because I think, you know, we, we've all had our Naomi experiences, our bitter providences in life, and yet God is providential through it. Times when things go sideways and we go, where? What? what? The Almighty's against me. And then... We find out a little later, no, he wasn't. I mean, Naomi may never quite understand why she went through what she went, had to lose husbands and sons in a foreign country. The details of why did you do it this way? But she's about to find out that this God, this Almighty, is actually still her Lord and very much cares for her. Because <clears throat> there's a barley harvest which is a teaser for chapter 2 in next week. All right. Any comments or questions before I close out the recording?
tonight. Let me pray. Father God, thank you, thank you for this gift of this story about Ruth and Naomi. Thank you that you've painted a picture of what it's like to providentially draw two destitute nobodies into your kingdom, call them home for the purposes of ultimately blessing them in ways they can't even imagine right now. And make, make application of that to our lives, that we too, in times where you appear to be against us and we are bitter, yet we continue to look to you and we continue to point others to you in our lives who we love to you, and then you come through in a big way, despite our hopelessness, despite our bitterness. You don't give up on us. Let your people be encouraged by that. In Jesus' name, amen.